Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, February 24th. Today's podcast focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm Isabel Danzis. And I'm Shayna Walsh. And here are this week's feature stories. New York is known for cold and blustery winters. But this winter, New Yorkers can't help but notice the seemingly sparse amounts of snow on the ground. I spoke with Dr. Jimmy Booth, a professor in the Earth and Atmospheric Sciences Department at the City College of New York, to ask him, where did snow go? It is hard not to notice a lack of snow in New York City this year. On January 30th, the city broke the record for the longest season without snowfall, and it took until the first week in February to get a little bit of snow on the ground. So what is causing this snow standoff? Well, the answer is not necessarily simple. Many point fingers at climate change as the culprit for the low snow year, but in reality, there is more than one factor involved. Looking back at the amount of snow for New York City, there have been years where we've had up to 60 inches over the course of a winter, but then there have been other winters where we had less than 10 inches. And that includes a winter in 19, looks like 1917, 1930. So these really small snow years actually can happen even in the absence of anthropogenic climate change. That was Dr. Jimmy Booth, a professor in the Earth and Atmospheric Sciences Department at the City College of New York. Booth says as climate change progresses, the amount of snowfall will decrease. But it's hard to tell whether the lack is due to climate change or New York City's normal snow variability. The likelihood of a low snow year like this is greater now than it was 100 years ago. And it's greater now because the general warming of all of the temperatures means it's just harder for the atmosphere to be cold enough to make snow. But to say, wow, this year is really dry as compared to something we had 20 years ago, that's more difficult to say. However, snowstorms have two parts to them, whether the snow comes and how long it stays. And so what we're thinking about is two different factors. One factor is, is the storm there to drop the snow on us? And then the second factor is, after the snow's there, how long does it stick around? And in the case of how long does it stick around, there's a clear trend where that's decreasing. Booth also stressed the point that climate change impacts seasons differently. During the summer, Booth says that the seasonal changes related to climate change are noticeable. Temperatures are warmer and days are hotter. And the number of days where we have uncomfortably hot temperatures has increased. So on that side of things, the impact of climate change is very noticeable. As climate change progresses, snow will become less common. However, Booth says snowfall won't disappear completely. As we look into what the climate models say for the future, the models all suggest that there is going to be a decrease in the number of snowstorms that we have in here in the New York region. The expectation is that 40 years from now, there will be less snow events on average per winter. But the thing that they keep in mind is, well, year to year, we have such big changes that the changes over a 30-year period might be to be less, but it doesn't mean that we won't have a really big snow event uh, or a big snow season at one time during that point in the future. Climate change has likely contributed to New York's low snow season. 
but it's hard to say whether it's the sole cause. I'm Isabel Danzis, WFUV News. That was my co-host Isabel Danzis speaking with Dr. Jimmy Booth about the lack of snow in New York City this year. Elizabeth Seton Hospital in Yonkers has been a home for kids with complex medical conditions for over 30 years. The residential center has given them a chance to not only survive, but to thrive and pursue a full life. In a two-part series, WFUV's Nicoletta Papavasilakis walks us through the one-of-a-kind care provided at Elizabeth Seton Hospital and how they are addressing the national problem these children face when they age out of the pediatric system. Over the years, the staff at Elizabeth Seton has gotten to know their residents pretty well. They know their favorite video games and even their favorite songs. Dylan's favorite song is Sicko Mode by Drake. A recreational therapist learned that while they were bowling. All right, bud, your favorite song, and you're going to get a strike. I can feel it. But beyond this, Elizabeth Seton provides kids with the individualized care that they need. I got to see this firsthand. What you're hearing is a vibroacoustic bed in the hospital's music therapy center. It's a bed that our residents can lie on. That was music therapist Elizabeth Ingram. It's a string and it's also percussion. So if you put your hand right here, you'll feel the vibration. These vibrations help to alleviate stress. Lauren Barnett, another music therapist, says it also helps relax muscles during physical therapy. So we focus predominantly on stretching when she's on here. Um, She benefits a lot from the relaxation of the sound wave bed. And sometimes Barnett even sings to the residents to calm them even more. Next, I went to the art room. There, I found art therapist Caroline Mason and two residents making a masterpiece. So we're kind of uh, taking turns in art making. Um, so as you saw before, you know, we had the, the koosh ball filled with paint. A koosh ball is a spiky, squishy ball made of rubber. Caroline and the kids were using it like a paintbrush, splattering different colors all across the canvas. So um, you had the visual where like the ball's rolling down with the paint, and then you have the sensory with, with the colors, the textures. Mason and the art therapy team tried to integrate creative ways of engaging different senses. So we might use bells while we're painting for the auditory stimulation. We might use maybe essential oils in the paint for aromatherapy. We might use ice cubes for painting to kind of have like that tactile experience too. So we try to just make it a multi-sensory experience for our kids. The art also gives Elizabeth Seen's kids the chance to express themselves. A lot of our children are nonverbal, so using the music, the art, the movement, like that's their voice. The last stop I made was quite literally out of this world. So we use our space voyage room for either relaxation or some sensory um, uplifting. That was Simone Sullivan, a recreational therapist. Light up tiles line the space voyage room and change to the tempo of music. So right now they're actually going very calmly with the calming music, but if you put on like um, a high stimulating music, they will go crazy. The therapists change this environment depending on their residents' medical and emotional needs. So if they're 
in a large group and they are either desaturating with their oxygen or their heart rate is going up or they're showing other signs that they're uncomfortable, we might try them in a lower in sensory environment to see if that is something that they prefer. There are also interactive elements in the room. Light switches allow the kids to turn some of these tiles on and off. By them being able to control things in this room, that gives them the autonomy to make choices for themselves, whereas sometimes they can't necessarily make um, choices for themselves in other aspects of their lives. One vital aspect out of these kids' control is what happens to them after they grow out of the pediatric system. When they turn 21, these new young adults have no choice to move out of the home they've lived in for most of their lives. For some of them, that's Elizabeth's seeing children's. They are often sent to geriatric facilities that are not suited to their medical and emotional needs. But Elizabeth Seaton is changing this by building the nation's first medical center specifically for young adults. In the second part of this two-part series, I will sit down with the hospital's CEO, Pat Tercy, to talk about this groundbreaking work. Stay tuned. With WFUV News, I'm Nicoletta Papavasilakis. That was WFUV's Nicoletta Papavasilakis at Elizabeth Seaton Children's in Yonkers. In part two of this series, Nicoletta will talk to representatives from the hospital about what happens to kids when they age out of the program and what the residential center is doing to help them. You can listen to that story on Wednesday, March 8th. In honor of Black History Month, we will be featuring a series highlighting Black representation in music. In this final installment, Noel Hankin and his group, The Best of Friends, helped manage some of the first Black-owned clubs in New York City. WFUV's Nicoletta Papavasilakis sits down with Hankin to discuss how they help bring disco to the mainstream. Tell me about the best of friends and some of your clubs. With five discotheques, Leviticus, Justine's, and Bogards in Manhattan, Lucifer's in Queens, and Brandy's in Brooklyn, we attracted 400,000 people a year. So we had a really big-time impact on the disco era before it really exploded uh, in the general population. Taking us back to the 70s, what was the disco scene like from what you remember? There was really no disco scene. There was dances with live bands and house parties with recorded music. And the technology for recorded music had uh, developed so well that there was the capability to deliver powerful, crystal-clear music for the first time at an affordable price. And uh, we took advantage of that to entertain uh, black folks who were working in midtown Manhattan in growing numbers in uh, entry-level managerial positions. Had, what was the impetus for this? You know, breaking into an industry where really there was no representation at the time. That's correct. I went to a, a birthday party one day at a club called La Martinique. It was a couple hundred folks, mostly African-Americans, and they were dancing like it was Saturday night to recorded music. And I thought, you know, the dances are great, but this crowd that I'd like to tap into in midtown Manhattan, they've never experienced anything like this with recorded music after work, dancing like it's Saturday night. <laughs> and I thought, that sounds like a lot of fun. Today we have techno music and house music, and right. it could all get blurred in this like mesh of disco. Yeah. So at that time, what truly was disco? What really happened was that the convergence of soul, R&B, and funk led to the development of what we call disco music. The early years of, of our discotheques, we played music that had lyrics. Mm -hmm. And I love the lyrics because they give you a sense of emotion and a context. Like, um, you know, Ain't No Stopping Us Now by McFadden and Whitehead. Ain't no 
or uh, James Brown, I'm Black and I'm Proud. These songs have lyrics that give you a certain emotion, and they're, and they're positive and they're uplifting. When you get to techno music with no lyrics, it's more mechanical. And uh, yes, it, it lends itself to dancing, but you don't have the same emotion. Can you describe the type of feelings these emote it, these songs, these lyrics emote it for you? When James Brown dropped that record, uh, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, that really resonated because, mm-hmm. you know, it took a little bit of a beat for people to accept black pride in that context. I'm black and I'm proud. You never heard that phrase before. And it was something that was fully embraced by all of our guests and, and beyond. Emerging into this new industry of disco, did you face any adversity at the time? Oh, yes, we did. Our first club in Queens was Lucifer's, and we didn't have a problem with that. But when we went to Manhattan and built our what became our flagship, Leviticus, we were looking at the east side because that's where our successful promoted discotheques were, where we you know, promoted other people's clubs and brought our crowd. But we couldn't find a place uh, on the east side. Finally, did find a nice place. And they wouldn't let us sign a lease because eight young black guys in our 20s, uh, they didn't know who we were. They might have thought we were, you know, a drug gang or something. I don't know. But they, they refused to sign a lease with us. So after all of that trouble, when the Best of Friends was finally able to open this club, what kind of crowd did you guys attract? Not all African-Americans. We had a lot of whites and Hispanics, gays, straights. Everyone came because it was the only club of its type that featured music the way we played it. Just elaborating on that, why do you think your clubs attracted such a diverse crowd? We created an environment where you felt comfortable asking anyone to dance. So you might have a CEO dancing with a a mailroom clerk or a secretary. it, It didn't matter. Once you're on the dance floor, your station in life is irrelevant. And um, there was a certain amount of freedom involved with that. That was WFUV's Nicoletta Papavasoulakis talking to Noel Hankin from The Best of Friends. To hear more about the history of disco, you can check out his book, Disco After Dark, Birth of the Disco Dance Party. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV's What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews just like the ones you heard exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Isabel Danzis. And I'm Shayna Walsh.